Good morning. I notice I'm a little different this morning. Got the, um, the full assembly attire on, so this is what I wore all last week. So for those of you who haven't seen it, um, it is a wide variety of attire, but I kind of go middle of the road, right? You can see shorts and t-shirts to the full seersucker suits with the bow ties. Um, it's quite a fashion thing. So got our little name tag, and I want to say thank you um, for sending me. Uh, Fountain Square chose to send me. This is one of the functions that our session uh, has done, and Pat would normally go as well, but of course, being on sabbatical, he didn't get to go. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, um, at the beginning of the sermon, I'll try and give you a couple of highlights of different things that were accomplished. Um, and this will uh, correspond to what's in the newsletter. But one of the most important things that we did uh, at this assembly was to um, hear from a committee that we, had, um, that we had erected to study the issue of domestic abuse and sexual assault in our churches. Um, we call it the DASA committee, D-A-S-A. And the committee spent three years, um, one extra year because of COVID, um, studying all kinds of abuse. And what does the Bible say about it? What um, do our standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, say about it? And, um, and they examined physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, and spiritual abuse. And you can read about it in their report. Um, it is a problem in our churches all across. Uh, it doesn't matter what denomination you're in. It's something that we should all be aware of. Uh, it's something that we will, as a session, try and help us become more aware of um, in the future. But I would encourage you, um, the report has in it actual case studies from within our denomination, things that you can read about that have actually happened to people. Um, if you... If you only have time to read one thing or to see one thing, there's about an hour where the committee gives a report. And the committee was six men and three women, um, women like Rachel Denhollander and Darby Strickland and Diane Langberg, people who have been working for decades in the church um, to counter the problem of abuse. Uh, it's one of the most profound hours that you will watch. Um, so it's in the newsletter. I still get emotional about it um, because there's so many good things that they say. I would encourage you to take that hour uh, and just watch what they have. You know, the report's long, but it's, there's so much valuable information in there. So I will just give that encouragement to you as one of the highlights. The other thing that we did and something that I was personally involved with in helping um, is we added protections for uh, victims of abuse when it comes to church discipline. And this is a huge step forward for us in our denomination and what we did. Um, it still has to go through a ratification process over this next year. But uh, of all the things that we did in our assembly, I think this is one of the best things that we've done, especially it helps prevent um, victims from having to be re-traumatized by their abusers. And it also adds protections for um, children under the age of 18 in terms of how they have to give testimony against those who have victimized them. So really an awesome step for us. Uh, so just wanna to commend to you that. Thank you for sending us, thank you. And this is a work that you are contributing to on behalf of the broader church. So 
Um, As we go to the Lord's word, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for what you are doing, um, for the ways that you have enabled your church to respond. As we come this morning to your word, would you give us wisdom? As you have promised, would you take from that truth and knowledge and gentleness and kindness and peace and purity that is yours, would you impart it to us by the power of your Spirit who lives within us? May he guide us into that truth. And would we receive it with humility as he plants it in our hearts because it is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I have been work from home for... Um, about five years now, but my kids obviously have seen more, more of me in the last couple of years with the pandemic, and something that's really fun that they like to do is to pretend that they know how to talk on conference calls like I do, using the language that I use, because the language makes no sense. And so, you know, they'll hear things like me talking about, well, if you want to understand the differences between HCI and UCS, we're going to have to talk further about that. Or if you want to configure NXOS via the CLI or the API, you can do that, but you want to make sure that you do end-to-end QoS, otherwise the system's going to have problems, right? Or the CE and the SE are, uh, are eligible for the SPIF, but if you, wanted, if you want to know more, you should talk to your PTO. And you're like, PTO, oh great, finally an acronym I know, praise the Lord, right? And then, of course, that does not uh, mean, praise the Lord, in my, in my context, it means uh, partner technical lead. So, because uh, I work in the technology sector. So, and I say that to illustrate the importance of a shared context in our communication, right? And one of the things that you learn um, when you're doing seminary training is how to understand how important it is to know what the shared context of communication is because you might get into a situation where I say something like PTL and you're like thinking, oh yeah, praise the Lord. And I'm talking about something completely different, right? And it leads to a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. And in our passage today, um, this is a passage that has been misunderstood for a long time. And we're gonna spend a couple of weeks looking at, at, at this more in depth Today's going to be a little bit of an overview, but part of the reason uh, that we do misunderstand it is because we're misunderstanding the context, the shared context, right? So we know that Timothy has returned, right? And he has given a report um, to uh, Paul, and he's brought with him a couple of new questions. And those questions are really about uh, the same thing. It's a question about what happens to believers who have died, how are they going to be resurrected? I understand what happens to me if I haven't died, but what happens to them when they die? And when is all of that going to occur? Um, But we have, we are the church, like let's say we as in uh, the modern church have had problems with this passage for a long time uh, now many more problems than the Thessalonians had. And so we're going to spend this week um, a little bit doing a little bit of deconstruction of some of the things that we've learned because we're coming into this passage. I mean, a lot of you have probably heard this passage or heard things about it 
in terms of something called the rapture. And so we're going to talk about that today before we actually get into the details of the text, because if we just start off talking about it, we might end up saying something that's completely different than what Paul is meaning for us to say. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at it um, across three questions. Um, again, this is a broad overview. We'll be less in the text itself, which is why you have some additional scriptures in your uh, worship guide there. Um, and we will come back again in the coming weeks to these passages. Um, but the three questions we're going to look at this morning are, um, what are the events of the last things that Paul is talking about? Okay, what are the events that Paul is addressing? Uh, and then secondly, which event is he talking about here in this passage? And then lastly, why in the world should we care? <laughs> right? Why is this important to talk about? Because um, a, a lot of us struggle with that even in, in this conversation, right? I don't want you to tune out. When I was little, I tuned all of these conversations out. And I understand even with the kids here this morning, that's okay. I, was re I, I ended up reading the book of Revelation and I ended up finding that, you know, 100-pound hailstones were falling on people. I thought that was interesting. So if you want to go ahead and do that, feel free. Um, but the sermon's just a little bit different than what you're used to. So just bear with me uh, and let's look at that. So let's talk about the events for a second. So and I'll use a timeline here kind of uh, from your left to my right. So uh, Paul starts off with a question, why, you know, what happens to the souls of believers after they die and when will they be resurrected? What happens, what's basically coming after this? Teaching about the last things is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian. And you might say, Dan, that's interesting. Um, I didn't really realize that teaching about the end times was so fundamental to being a Christian, right? But Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, you know that I told you all about these things when I was with you. And remember, Paul was only with them for two or three months. So even in the space of two or three months, if you're spending two or three months with a new Christian, is, is the end times of the last things on your list of things to teach? For some of us, we haven't thought a lot about that. But Paul considered it fundamental to a new Christian to teach them about those things, right? Um, and we know the same thing from Hebrews 6, where he talks, where the writer of Hebrews talks about the elementary things. And two of those things, the resurrection and the final judgment, are considered to be the basics of the Christian faith. So that's what we're talking about. This is not super advanced stuff. Some of this is just basic information, okay? So... Um, when a person dies, right, at that moment, their soul is ripped from their body. We've talked some about this in the last couple of weeks. The soul is ripped from their body. It's not a natural thing. It was never designed to be that way. It's a result of sin, right? And it goes back to God. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the spirit returns to God who gave it, right? And Hebrews 9, uh, 27 says, at that point, it faces judgment. The spirit either goes to be with God in comfort or goes um, and faces God in judgment and justice. That happens immediately after death. We don't believe in our denomination that scripture teaches that there's any 
uh, thing in the middle, uh, commonly called purgatory, right? We don't believe in that. We don't believe the scriptures, scriptures teach that. Um, so you go and you face, um, you face the Lord and then you're separated. We call this the intermediate state because it is, well, not the final state, right? It's the intermediate state. As our souls await reunification with our bodies on the last day, right? The last day. So over there, here to the last day. The last day is the day that Jesus comes again. We call it the second coming, right? So Jesus' first coming was when he came and was born as a baby. His second coming then happens on the last day, and that's the day that he makes all things right. That's commonly what we talk about, right? Um, it's the day of the final judgments, the day that everything, all evil and wickedness is taken away. We read like in Revelation 21, there'll be no more sorrow or pain or tears for the former things have passed away, right? That's what we're talking about. Now, in the middle of those two things is where most of the debate is and kind of where some of our questions about our passage comes. And there's three big events uh, of discussion, right? One of those is the rapture. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, the tribulation and the thousand-year reign, which is mentioned in Revelation 20. We're not going to talk about the tribulation or the thousand-year reign. We don't, have, we don't have time to go into all of that stuff today. Um, but the rapture is tied up a lot with the second coming and how do those things do. And the passage that we're looking at today has been typically explained as... Um, this is a passage about the rapture. And let me give you a little definition, again, kind of that shared context of what it has been uh, purported to see, especially in our church. Um, the idea of the rapture is that there is a secret taking, right, of all of the Christians out of the world when Jesus comes. He comes in glory and all the Christians are removed from the earth, right, and all the, uh, the people who do not place faith in Jesus... Um, are left behind, right? Left behind, does is that, is that ring any bells for anybody? <laughs> right? Tim LaHaye. This is how you guys probably have heard a lot of it, right? In the Left Behind series with Tim LaHaye. Let me explain how you got to that, how Tim LaHaye's books came about, because I want you to understand this. That concept of a secret rapture of believers uh, being taken out of the world before a lot of the bad things happen, that concept is unknown to the early church. It's unknown in history until the 1800s. It's a new concept. But it has become the dominant view in our churches um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, I mentioned Tim LaHaye, right? And we all like to read a lot of good books. Um, I read a lot of Frank Peretti when I was growing up and there was a lot of fun stuff in there, a lot of fiction works. Tim LaHaye and other people like that, like Charles Ryrie and some other people that came before him, right, were heavily influenced by a guy named Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. And maybe you've heard of something called the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909. And in 1909, it was the first Bible ever to put a person's notes alongside the biblical text. So prior to 1909, it was considered very unwise, and we could debate the legitimacy of this wisdom, um, to put your words next to God's words, because people would start to equate the two as this is what this is saying, as if it was definitive fact. 
Schofield was dramatically influenced by a guy who is called kind of the father of dispensationalism, a guy named John Nelson Darby. In 1826, Darby was an Anglican minister in the UK, and um, he was studying his Bible, and he read a passage, Isaiah 42, uh, which is about the Messiah. And in Isaiah 42, verse 9, the prophet Isaiah, speaking about the Messiah, says, I will declare new things that you have not heard before. Before they spring forth, I declare them to you. Now, Darby took that to mean that God was going to give him new revelation that had not previously been made known before. And he broke with the Anglican church and started his own denomination. Um, that denomination in various forms still exists today, actually. But that gives you a historical context to understand that this idea of the rapture, which came out of his theological system, that idea that I talked to you about, that it's a secret that removes Christians from the world to escape suffering, that didn't exist before he made those, uh, he put that forth in the 1800s. So that should give us pause in thinking about it. But again, most of us have heard about it, because in America, this became the dominant teaching in study Bibles and amongst theologians for many, many years. So that's a little bit of our barrier. That's kind of the history of how we got to this passage. I've kind of already said, like, I don't believe that's what the passage is saying, and why do I not think that's what the passage is saying? So let's look at the text and walk through it together. I'm also going to refer to this um, additional scriptures sheet as we go through it, right? And I'm going to step you through my journey of how I kind of came to understand this. Um, this is not about figuring out um, all of the things around the end times, you know, your end times philosophy, whether you're a millennial or whatever, right? It's not about that. This is just about understanding what the text says, okay? We're going to dive more into it, like I said, in the coming weeks, but walk with me through this. So um, think about the events. Think about the timeline, right? So today, you know, sometime in the future and the last day, right? Think about those three, those three, time, uh, three points on the timeline as we walk through these, and I'll walk you through it so we can get to kind of understanding what Paul's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay, so let me ask you a question. So the trumpet's there. Um, you heard, um, as our scripture was read, Right, the trumpet, um, there was a trumpet in ours in verse 16. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Um, but what does it say in 1 Corinthians 15? Which trumpet is it? It's the last trumpet, right? So let me ask you a question. How many trumpets are after the last trumpet? It's a trick question. There's no trumpets after the last trumpet. If it's the last trumpet, by definition, it's the last trumpet, right? So that would put 1 Corinthians 15 right over here on this side. 
right? The last day, the last thing that happens. Okay, so, okay, maybe that's, maybe the first Corinthians 15 is just talking about that. Let's go to Matthew. Um, this is really two paragraphs separated by a short parable in the middle, so I'll stop us part, part of the way through. But read, these are the words of Jesus um, in his final sermon in Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So if you just stopped right there, you say, okay, there's another trumpet. He's going to gather his elect from the four winds. That sounds very similar, right, to what Paul is talking about, right? That he will gather everybody up to meet them in the air when the trumpet, with the, when the trumpet sounds. The question, though, is, okay, well, this is interesting because it says all the tribes of the earth will see him, not just Christians. Sounds like it's a little bit more of a universal kind of public event. Um, and there's some other things in there, but I'm like, okay, well, maybe, let's see, maybe we're talking about this, this rapture thing, but let's keep going in the passage. I mentioned there's a little parable, and then listen to what Jesus says uh, directly after that. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And notice how Jesus doesn't clarify what day he's talking about. He says, but of that day, and you're talking, okay, that day, what day are you talking about, Jesus? He's talking about the day which he will gather his elect from the four winds. He's talking about the paragraph that's directly preceding it. So on the day that he gathers his elect from the four winds, that day is a reference to the last day, right? That's what he's saying. So, I mean, if you're just sitting there listening to it, you're like, yeah, of course, you were just talking about a day you were going to gather everybody together. Of course, you're talking about that day. So here's, here's what that day is going to look like. And now he's answering the question, well, when is that day going to happen? And he says, no one knows. Okay, you with me so far? All right. If you're not, that's okay, too. Um, so let's keep reading. Um, and I want... I want you to pay attention in this section to the pronouns. I know it's a lot of English for summer break, um, but pay attention to the pronouns, they and them, all right? For as were, in the days of, as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. And you've probably heard this passage, you know, many times in conjunction with the rapture. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Right. Um, in 2008, I don't know if many of you were um, we're doing a lot of email. I was doing a lot of email then. And there was a, a new startup that came out called you've been left behind.com. I don't know if any of you ever saw this, right? It was a service that you could pay $40 a month to that in the event of the rapture, 
it would send emails up to 62 of your friends and relatives that presume, I don't know why 62, that was the limit. Limit was 62. Um, and they would send an email out after the rapture occurred so that you would have one last opportunity to evangelize your family. The way they determined that the rapture had occurred was amongst the five of them, if three of them failed to log in for six days consecutively. I don't know, but that's, uh, I, you know, you get the idea. Right, maybe you've, or maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, right, on the back of a car that says, caution, you know, maybe unmanned in case of rapture, right? Anybody seen that? Okay. Even thinking about the Left Behind series, right, I want you to understand, like, how, how different the passage actually is. Who is they in the passage? They are the ones who are taken away. The ones who are taken away are the ones who are taken away to judgment, right? Noah is the righteous person in the story. Noah is the believer. Noah is the one who is left on earth. The whole point of this passage is you want to be left behind. You don't want to be taken away because to be taken away is to be taken away to judgment away from God's presence and his favor, right? That's the whole point. And so, like, you know, we've heard this, this, um, this idea, again, that we want to be taken up. And again, it's just been so popular. I felt like we needed to spend time addressing it because it's so taken out of context of what the biblical text actually means, right? What it's actually trying to say, and in that sense, robbing us a little bit of our hope and our comfort. Um, but go back to 1 Thessalonians, because Paul follows the same pattern here in our passage that Jesus does in Matthew 24. Remember, Paul spent three years learning directly from Jesus before he went into ministry. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, right, Paul's answering the question, uh, how, do believe, you know, how do we think about the resurrection of believers, especially those who have died, and what do we do you know, in light of that? And again, think about the same way Matthew 24 is, right? You say, okay, if that passage was the only passage we had, maybe it's talking about something like that. But what does Paul say in chapter 5, verse 1? Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to be written to any, uh, no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And again, you have to say the times and seasons of what? Of what I was just talking about, which then he goes on in verse 2 to say what I was just talking about is the day of the Lord, right? It's this last day, the thing over here, the second coming. That's what I was just talking about, right? He follows the same structure that Jesus follows in his sermon, talking about the event itself and then talking about the times and seasons, and what I want to submit to you is what the goal of talking about it in two different ways is, is it's talking about two different perspectives on the same event. One perspective if you are in Christ, one perspective if you are not in Christ. And this is how Jesus explains it himself in Revelation 3. This is the last verse on your additional scriptures. Um, we'll save the others for another time. Um, so it's that last paragraph. So this is Jesus talking at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, these are people who um, profess the faith, but really aren't believers. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you say that you're Christians, but you don't really know me. And your actions can, you know, even speak to that. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not yet found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And then listen what Jesus says here. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I don't know if it's, it's a little bit more subtle. What, he, what he's saying is, if you, if you are not in Christ, if you are not acting in faith, from that perspective, it looks like I'm coming like a thief in the night. But if you are a believer, I am coming to, to receive you into my comfort, into my joy, right? The same thing happening, but experienced very differently based on two different perspectives, right? Because we all bring our own perspectives into um, each event that we uh, talk about or each event that we experience, right? You can talk to, to two kids in the same family about the same thing that happened and right, they're gonna say, no, it didn't happen that way, right? That's what we're talking about. Two perspectives on the same event. And that's what we're gonna look at as we go through the passage uh, next week and the week after, different perspectives on the same event, okay? So that's what I'm gonna submit to you, that that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the last day. Uh, in the last day, one perspective of the last day is gonna be that as believers, we are resurrected and caught up to meet Jesus. We'll talk about what that means. But at the same time, in the other perspective, if you are not in Christ, if you don't um, accept his atoning death and sacrifice on your behalf, right? then it comes on you like a thief, like someone who is coming to take away the very things that you have because he's coming in judgment uh, against you. That's what the passages are about. And you might say, Dan, that's great. Why does it matter? Right? Like, why are we even talking about these things? What's the big deal? Um, and part of this is in our response that we'll read after the sermon, right? Um, because future promise shapes present practice. Future promise shapes present practice. And there are a lot of reasons, um, there are a lot of reasons why this is important. One of the, one of the ones I mentioned, right, was because um, Paul obviously thought it was important enough to tell new Christians about it. And if it's that central to what new Christians need to know, it's probably that central to us. But the second one especially um, kind of comes out of what the rapture did for people, what the traditional teaching of it, I shouldn't say traditional because that's not right, what the, the modern teaching of it did um, to Christians especially affected the doctrine of suffering. Because the idea was when you were taken out of this world, after that there was a great period of suffering. And the church was, was spared a lot of that suffering, right? But if what we've talked about today, if what we've talked about today is true, and that 
there, what we're looking for really is just a straight line to one event, and there's going to be a lot of things in the middle, including suffering, right? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We need to develop a more robust theology of suffering and what it means, what it means to live Christ in the world. And we've talked, um, we talked even a lot about this um, at our assembly. Um, but maybe we're just, we, we've, we've got things so easy that we don't really think about it. And we even talk about this in our confession, right? We've lost the true hope of your coming because we're so at ease. I'm as guilty of this as anybody is in this room, right? We're so at ease. We so, um, I think about where the Thessalonians are, right? Where their brothers and sisters are being persecuted, losing friends and family and businesses and even their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And I think about the words uh, from Hebrews 12, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood, right? And how easy it is for me to, to... just to think that things should be going fine because I'm trusting in Jesus, right? But Jesus teaches throughout his ministry, right, that in this world you will have trouble. Even think about Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. What happens? The wheat grows up, the weeds grow up right alongside it. Or the sheep and the goats. The sheep grow up, the goats grow up. And then at the end, he separates them. We shouldn't be surprised that the fact that evil in the world and darkness in the world grows up right alongside our faith. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what is happening. But in the end, it will be made right. And I want us to to think about how we can further our embrace is not the right word. I don't even know what the right word is. How to endure suffering. How to not try and make our lives about avoiding as much suffering as possible, right? That's what I feel like I'm doing. Like a lot of my things, just trying to avoid suffering. But really, more, how do I live in true holiness and honor, knowing that that is to be expected of me? That's kind of where I wanted to go and leave us with this morning. I know Um, You probably have a lot of questions. I understand that. We can't talk comprehensively about everything up here. Um, As we come back to the passages over the next couple of weeks, if you have questions, I'd love to help work those in to the sermon to answer them. Um, Feel free to email me um, or talk to me after the service or however you want to do that. Um, But we'll continue to look at this and walk through it together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time in your word. Um, We do pray, Father, that you would help us to endure well. Uh, We pray that we would um, come to know and expect that in this world we will have trouble, that as we stand up for what is true and right and good, that... There will be opposition. There will be persecution. There will be things that will come against us. Father, help us to endure well. 
Teach us to long for the hope of your coming. Teach us to long for the comfort that comes when you right all wrongs. Teach us the urgency of the fact that you could come quickly at any moment, even now. And Jesus, we do pray that you would not tarry, that you would come quickly. In your name, amen.